0: Hey, badasses, I'm Kelly Young. And I'm Stevie Stays Kirsch. And we're your hosts for Badassery Life Podcast, a podcast where we have the privilege to sit down and talk with women we think are living badassery lives.
1: These are ordinary women doing extraordinary things women who are social activists, moms, entrepreneurs, athletes,
0: survivors, mentors, and more. We hope to awaken the badass in you by bringing you stories from other powerful, beautiful, bold women. Uh, this episode, I'm going to tell you, is going to be a little harder than some of the ones that we've um, done in the past, and um, very emotional for us um, as moms, as humans, as as individuals. So, um, I, you know, as we talk through it, you might hear us take breaks, or you'll feel our tears and feel our feel our emotions as well too. But our guest today is on a mission, really, to make sure that other parents don't experience the horrific tragedy that she went through when her 35 year old estranged husband. Forcefully entered her home one afternoon, viciously beat her and her nine year old daughter, then went upstairs, shot her 18 month old son nine times before turning the gun on himself. Meet Cassandra Tanner Miller.
1: She is courageously telling her story because she feels no matter how hard it is to tell, the details of that day are important to hear for everyone. Law enforcement, the Illinois National Guard, And the judicial system all let her down, and now she's doing something about that in an effort to save lives in a way that would make her baby boy Colton proud of her.
0: Cassandra, my heart really aches for you and your incredible loss, and and I have to just share how we got connected, which has to have been the most random thing, because actually the day that you called, Stevie and I were doing a photo shoot um, to promote this podcast. And you called me from, you live in Illinois, and reached out and said, is this Kelly Young? And were you involved with the Baker One Project with Domestic Violence Network? And it took me back for a minute because that was several years ago um and I was just so moved you went on to tell me your story and I was just so moved by it and and I don't know how you found me um but I'm I'm honored and I'm privileged and I'm you know uh want to do whatever I can to try to help you and share that story so thank you very much for reaching out to me and and I shared that with Stevie actually I called you right after i I got off the phone with you and I said, I, I'm i speechless and I don't know what to do with this and and can we have her on the podcast. So thank you for making the drive in and, um, you know, if we can do anything to help you for sure and, and you share your story to inspire others. So um, let's start by what happened on that day in September.
2: About four months ago on September 21st, 2019, it was a normal Saturday afternoon. I, The only thing different was later that evening, I was supposed to go to a friend's brother's wake who had passed away and uh, unexpectedly. And uh, so it was our normal morning, got up, you know, we had breakfast, hung out. I took a couple pictures of my son standing on his rocking chair looking out our back window and doing, you know, risky stuff you shouldn't have been doing, typical little boy. And then it was nap time because I thought, okay, well, normal nap time, going to put him down for a nap, going to kind of take a little snooze myself. I was a little tired and Had my daughter, you know, go upstairs and before then I had Instacarted, you know, where you can like have groceries delivered to you and I ordered a few things and my neighbor down the way had actually asked me to, you know, put a few things in my basket for her and she'd send her kid over to pick them up. So I ordered it. They said it would be in around like 2, 2 2.15 in the afternoon. So I thought, okay, brought Colt upstairs around like 1, 1 1.15, 1.30 in the afternoon and laid him down for our usual nap and you know, kind of, I breastfed him to sleep. He slept with me. I co-slept with him and put him down for his nap and he finally, you know, rested and was resting. And my daughter comes in at like two o'clock-ish and I kind of had just drifted kind of off to sleep with him. And she goes, hey mom, you know, Instacart just got here. And I said, okay. I said, well, you know, just bring the groceries back in. I said, you know, um, I'll text Ashley and let her know, send the kids down, leave the bag with the Swiffer stuff outside. So she did. And then, I messaged Ashley and she's like, "Oh, you know, I, I sent the kids down, and this was like two, maybe thirty to twenty five to thirty, somewhere in the afternoon." But she said, "Oh, I put the had the kids put the you know the money under the mat or whatever." And I said, "Okay, I'll grab it for them when I head downstairs." So Cam came upstairs and she said, "Mom, I'm really hungry. I brought the groceries to the front door. You know, can you come down and can you make me something?" And I said, "Yeah, sure. One second, you know." So I kissed Colts on his head and I unlatched him because he was still latched and sound asleep. And uh, I kissed him. And I said, be right back up, Papa. You know, because walked downstairs and grabbed the groceries from the front door, grabbed my daughter and brought her into the kitchen. And I kind of seen this like black shadow kind of quickly go past in the back window. And I have a huge island that I actually just got done with, you know, seating and so I was like, okay, well, that's kind of weird, but we live backed up to cornfields, so it wasn't that unusual to see kind of see something swoop by. I thought maybe a big hawk. I turned around, and it was definitely Chris Miller standing there, my strange husband, and he never came to the back door before. And I knew in that moment, like, why would he come to this back door? This is strange. He knew we were taking a nap, so why would he be here? And just as I stepped forward, the door flew open. And I pushed my daughter back, dropped the groceries, and I said, Cameron, run. Go get your brother and get out. Don't stop for anything. Just as he stepped in, he said, are you all ready to die today? He had this big smile on his face. And I knew in that moment I had to give everything to protect my kids. I knew that if I failed fighting back, that my kids were not going to be okay. His first punch that he delivered blew my eardrum, so everything faded in and out and made this horrific noise, and every subsequent punch after that was just a blow after blow to my face, all in the same spot, dragged me through my hallway, which leads to my front door and the bottom of the staircase where would eventually be where my kids would have to exit, and that's where he continued to beat me and strangle me, He specifically went behind me and was strangling me, and then when I would go unconscious, he would punch me in my face to wake me back up. After this lasted for I can't even tell how many minutes because the in and out of consciousness, you lose track of time very quickly. And I just remember the last moment of him over me, straddling me with both of his hands on my neck and said, you're never going to feel the touch of anyone else never going to feel your kids ever again. We're all going to die in this house together. We're going to be together forever. You're mine. You're always going to be mine. And this is just what's going to happen. And then I faded to black. Then I remember having this crazy out-of-body experience and I can't explain it besides that, that I'm literally floating over my body, watching myself on the ground as he flips me onto my stomach he takes this three-foot candlestick that I had that was for decor. It's got an iron ore middle and the rest of it's ceramic. And he starts beating me in the back of my head and the back of my back with it over and over and over again. I wasn't responding. Um, Then he starts kicking me in my rib cages and fracturing my ribs and I actually separated all the muscles from my intercostals. And then that's as much as I remember when it comes to that, then my daughter's account of that day starts taking place because at this moment, during this whole time, I'm screaming to her, get your brother, get out. But in disarray, I'm at the bottom of the stairs, Colton's sleeping. She's standing there. She's thinking, we're safe. We're okay. We're up here. You know, like, why would he come up here? Why would he hurt us? We had never experienced this before from him, you know? And so she's looking in this overlook, and I'm down on the ground. And she said, Mom, you should stop moving. Like when he was hitting you with a candlestick, when he was kicking you, you weren't making noise anymore. You weren't moving anymore. I thought you were dead. I knew you were dead on that floor. And she goes, and that's when he turned. He went up the stairs, and he pulled out a gun. And he turned into the master bedroom where my son was sleeping. And he fired at least nine to ten bullets into my sleeping son's head. She said at that point, she kind of started running, and he grabbed her, and he said, are you having fun yet, Cameron? And he leaned down into her, and he said, it's your turn. Two down, one to go. He got on top of her and strangled her from behind like he did me. And at that moment, he was biting her. He was biting her back like he was biting my stomach during the savage attack. She was holding on to the metal spindles in my railings and he kept trying to get her to flip over and to get into a more comfortable position because she said all I could hear was he, he was hitting something against each other and he hit her in the face, which she said what she thought was the gun and he was trying to load the gun to kill her. She said at that point where she saw me out of the corner of her eyes starting to come to my feet, I stumbled up the stairs, and when he saw me coming up the stairs, he let go of her, only to come towards me, and she snuck in between us, and I grabbed her, and I shoved her down the stairs, and I said, Run, Cameron, run. Go, don't stop for anything. Don't stop. If for anything you hear, just get out of this house. She said she wouldn't move, she kept grabbing my hand and saying that he had a gun. Mom, run. He's got a gun, and that's when he started firing at us. Bullets had ricocheted and stroked across my back. And uh, I got her out the front door and I collapsed in my, right off my stoop. And my neighbor dragged me to his garage, awaiting for the ambulance. At that point, the police and everybody was on scene. They got me into the ambulance with my daughter. And I remember I was having a hard time breathing. I was going in and out of consciousness because the swelling was getting so bad between my neck from the strangulation and my face from the repeated punches to them that I kept hugging her and I just said if mommy dies in this ambulance just remember I love you and when they get Colty out because I thought he was sleeping just love him the way mommy would love him little did I know that my son had been shot already at that point point. I was told it was a hostage situation when they brought me to the hospital. I sat there for five to six hours, thinking my son was either in the arms of a crazy person or he was now just roaming around the house and looking for his mom, you know. And um, I called my family from the ambulance, and I, I I just briefly said, I said, Not, I don't know if I'm going to live, but Colton's still in the house. Chris came in, he beat me, strangled me, and uh, I think we heard gunshots. I I don't remember, and I said, you need to come to my house. You need to get there because Colton's still in there. You need to get my baby out. So my family went to my home where they were met with, obviously, SWAT and police and, you know, everybody hover things where they were releasing them in the sky to be able to map out this neighborhood and what was going on. And I sat at the hospital with just my daughter and I just praying that when my family got him that they would show up at the hospital. And finally, later that evening, I couldn't even tell you what time, maybe 9, 10 o'clock at night, um... My family showed up, and they walked into the room where I was at. They walked out. They didn't recognize me until my daughter said, Nana, where's Colty? And that's when my family turned back in, and their arms were empty. And the detectives had came in to tell me that my son had been murdered. And then that... Chris had took his own life in my home. Yeah. And uh and that was that was as far as that evening went and then I just remember thinking to myself like this has to be a nightmare you have to be wrong and that's when the the hell of this life really took into effect and then went back to my family's home and then was told later That day and the next day, you know, he, the coroners, which I was so grateful for Kendall County coroners because they treated my son so unbelievable. They wrapped him in a blanket, they carried him, they were so beautiful to him. And the relationship that we had formulated during this process, I was so incredibly lucky to have such beautiful guardian angels that were there willing to take care of him. And then, um, I knew at that point that I just, I had to put my son to rest properly, you know, and I, uh, a couple days later, it took a few days at the funeral home for them to uh, be able to put my son back together. You know, they told me he was not gentle with him. And that's when I had been told that it was nine to 10 bullets that they had found that had gone through my son's head. And at the funeral home, I got to hold him. Um, His face was okay. Thankfully, got to hold him. They made this little makeshift thing and I got to rock him in a rocking chair. And I knew in that moment of holding a cold child that I needed to speak up and I needed to be the voice and the change of domestic violence that I needed to be the one who literally spent the rest of my life making sure no other parent in that moment had to hold their child that was once healthy and warm and happy, now cold and being put to rest forever, you know? Yeah.
0: Okay. Thank you for sharing that. I know Um. I watched the stories, and I, I know you said that you want him to be proud of you and that you're honoring your son the right way, and I have no doubt that you are. Thank you. Know? you. Um, I know we have a couple of questions that we want to get Absolutely. more into kind of the – system and and that sort of thing and we've you know kind of moved into that direction as well stevie i know you had a couple i do
1: yeah thank you kelly um cassandra i my heart goes out to you and i know that many of us know someone whether it's a family member a friend a friend of a friend who has been touched by domestic violence so i applaud your effort in this endeavor you said that the system failed you over and over again there's no doubt so let's break that down first law enforcement the Illinois State Police in particular, he should not have had his gun. His FOID card, which for our listeners is the firearm owner's identification card, should have been revoked because of previous aggravated charges. He never turned his gun in. It's a flawed system, and you're working to make a difference. Tell us about that.
2: Absolutely. So, within Illinois when they send out these letters it's a letter that just gets sent to you in the normal everyday mail where they tell you that you need to relinquish your void card you know and um for an honest person relinquishing that card would seem like a just a common trend right the law is asking you to do something and you're going to do it for a dishonest person who has a history of criminal activity and um you know, batteries and drug charges, asking them to just relinquish these when they feel that they have entitlement. Well, I own these guns. I serve in the military. Why would I why would I turn something like that into anybody, you know? Um, and that needs to be the change. There was This was relinquished in 2018 in January is actually when that letter first came out, even when I had made this public statement that this had been revoked, Illinois State tried to say, no, he never had a void revocation. It was never revoked. And they had to retract their statement to notice that they actually did. They were supposed to have these weapons in their possession, and they never followed through on it. And Unfortunately, within Illinois, the, the man force power to be able to come and retrieve these weapons, it's, it's dangerous, right? So they know that this person has these charges. Now they have weapons within their home. They know when they go there, they're going to be met with some type of, you know, a combatism. Like they're not going to just do as they're supposed to. So with this Domestic Violence Task Force and everything that I'm trying to push forward to is to try to find some type of system to implement the revocation in a safe way where there can be the relinquishing of guns to law enforcement, not to anybody else, so then they can't pick them up within their reach. You know, unfortunately, when you have crazed people who don't follow laws and They don't, it doesn't matter. They're going to find a way to get whatever. And everyone's always met with this whole, well, you're anti-gun. No, a gun did not murder my child, I'd say. A criminal holding that was, so.
1: Let's talk also about how the courts failed you. GPS alert system is available to courts, but rarely used, if they even know about it. Um, So you're working with a state representative in Illinois to get that changed and it's so beautifully called Colton's Law. Where do you stand on that today?
2: Okay. So just a few days ago, I actually introduced um, David Welter, my state representative, introduced the domestic task uh, force actually into um, the House. And um, so we are currently working to get sponsorship for that. We already had quite a few pledges while we were there. I actually met with Governor Pitzer myself. Um, and got his support of it, um, to be able to create this task force that's going to allow us to look more in-depth into domestic violence and really what our outreach is within the state, what our capabilities are. This GPS track system was actually created many years ago in 2012, and 2009 was first introduced, where you could actually monitor violent offenders in domestic battery cases, but most people don't even know that it's available because most Court cases, they don't even tell you that it's an option. Cook County uses it more than any place does, but most counties don't even know that it's available for domestic violence victims. And that needs to change because that order of protection that everyone seems to push is just a piece of paper. It has no protection behind it. And the man, the abuser, the female, the abuser, whichever way that this might go, is not going to follow that order of protection, without some type of following on them to make sure that they're actually in accordance to it. Because there's so many times where they're violated and then it's just brushed under the rug and brushed under the rug. And domestic violence, you know, it, it's something that we deal with every single day. You know, it, it, this boundary of it, people think that, oh, you just get an order of protection, you're fine. That's mm-hmm. not what domestic violence is. It is a common, it's a threat that happens every single day with or without that piece of paper. But in most order protections, if you really look into it, it raises your risk of being murdered by that person, even follow through within the first 72 hours by 65%, which is a huge, tremendous number. So when you're asking a woman who's already scared of her abuser or a man who's scared of their abuser, you tell them to go to this order of protection. Well, you're just provoking somebody who already at this point doesn't care whether they hurt you, whether you live or die, you know? So being able to create this task force to educate and find the loopholes within Illinois is going to be a beautiful thing that really is history for Illinois to be able to move from district to district to come up with some type of allowance and a system in which domestic violence is handled because right now it changes from district to district and county to county and the way we handle it and you know some places you know like oh well they take domestic battery serious here and then some counties where it's not taken seriously so you know, I'm, I'm very proud that we're introducing the Colton's Law in this way because it's it's a bigger aspect of really what the protection of domestic violence is going to be within Illinois. So
0: Absolutely. I, I don't know enough about it even here in Indiana, but I, I hope that if we have listeners that are outside of this area, um, that there are ways, like how, how do people find out about that? And do you know? Um, just about my thing. Well, well, yours are like even in Indiana. Um, do we work with our local domestic violence network or, uh, the courts? What's the? You reach
2: out to your court system. The court system? And most okay. of them will have okay. a domestic violence advocate. Um, that will allow you to know really what your steps are and what coverage that you actually have for domestic violence. The courts, you know, they have domestic violence advocates and their caselights are very high and very heavy. Um, And a lot of townships even have, like, their own networking. You know, like some places have, like, a guardian angel or something where you can reach out to them and they'll work with you hand-in-hand and how to escape an abuser and how to get away from them, you know. um, And that's really, you know, you can reach out to your own state representative and see really what your laws are, what your changes are that are within your district and what your capabilities are.
1: So, Cassandra, within that broken system, another agency that you reference is the National Guard. Yes. Yes. Tell me, what could they have done? Um, what are you hoping that they will do in the future? You did report um, his drug abuse and his violent behavior in the past. So, so where did that fail?
2: So currently, it's under investigation. Um, once this happened, it led to an investigation that they brought in people federally to be able to investigate the National Guard. So that's still ongoing currently. Um, but I did reach out to his commanders, people that were in charge of him when he was at his, you know, his armory that he was currently supposed to be at. Um, I had notified them. There was one specific incident while he was on active duty orders where he had wrecked his vehicle and he had done some very aggressive um, behavior towards myself. Um, And I notified them and I basically told them, you know, like he has pending batteries that they did not know about because they are supposed to be background checking. They hadn't. He was not supposed to have a weapon within his reach. He still was going to drill and still had that ability to be active with his weapon Um, And I told him about his violent behavior, and he even self-reported to the National Guard about his anger issues and his drug addiction on formal pieces of paper and submitted it to them, and there was no follow-through on it. I reported that he wasn't going to the drug rehabs and the counseling that he was supposed to be given, and I was met with literally mind your own business. And they stopped taking my phone calls or they would forward me to somebody else And eventually just told me, well, you guys are living separate, so you just need to do your own thing. But well, guess what? Doing my own thing is what I'm trying to tell you is that he's not letting us do our own thing. He's still continuing this dangerous behavior and spiraling into a direction that's going to be dangerous, not only for himself, but others. Did I ever imagine that it was going to be my children and I? No, maybe me, but not my children. Right. How long, and I
0: I don't know, did you share um, how long you guys had been married and like what that relationship was? um? So we
2: had started dating in um, 2012 officially, um, but we had known each other since college. So about for 15 years, I'd know him. Um, We were in a relationship together from that point, at least. I mean, we Really started in 2011, but 2012 made it more official. So at least you know seven to eight years that we were together, and then we got married in September 7th of 2000 and or September 8th of 2017 was our anniversary. We got married in a court, which was fine at that point. I was newly pregnant with Colton, and um, I figured, okay, well, you know, we were engaged for a few years prior to this, and it's time to do that, but. When I said I do, everything became I don't. And the relationship started to dwindle. It started changing that it wasn't just a normal protective behavior of don't do this or don't do that. It's I don't want you talking to this person. Why are you dressing like that? Where are you going? Let me see your phone. Constant with the GPS tracking on my phone, checking phone bills. Then that's when like the auditory stuff in the house, you know, he got a system within the house where he could listen in at any point of time, which is a very common narcissistic thing in controlling relationships is they always need to keep ties on you. They always need to know what you're doing when you're doing it. And that's when it really started getting out of control. And the more pregnant I got, the more he realized I was more vulnerable. So then his behavior towards me started getting even more obsessive and also just more aggressive. And, you know, I remember even going to a doctor's appointment while I was pregnant with him, and they give you a sheet that says, you know, do you feel safe at home? You know, do you feel like you're okay at home? And I actually checked the box and said I felt unsafe. And um, we were about 45 minutes because I was a high-risk, I was a high-risk pregnancy um, because I was having some health issues with it. Um, I was going hypoglycemic. So, We were driving home, and the doctor's office actually had called me and said, Hi, you know, Cassandra, this is such and such. And I just was actually calling you because I noticed that you checked the box and said that you felt unsafe at home. And he was driving us on the highway at that point. And I knew the minute it went over my car radio because, uh. That I knew at that point that was not going to be good for me. Because now at this point, this abuser, I'd never said anything before. And now I finally spoke up. The look on his face was like, you're done. You're going to get it when we get home. And he drove insanely crazy the whole way home, weaving in out of traffic. I mean, to the point where I was crying. I was begging for him to stop. When we got home, he dragged me onto the ground. He strangled me. I did not lose consciousness, but I had called the police. And there's no, there's no marks, so nothing was done about it. You know, he wore that shiny military uniform, and it's every time that people would come, would be like, "Oh, well, thank you for your service." And you know, I, I'm so sorry that you guys are in some type of argument or what's going on here. And it was never an argument. It's a domestic violence relationship is not an argument it is somebody who is controlling you to a sense where you can't do anything without their permission and when you go and you avoid something that they want you to do it becomes a serious moment for them to realize that well you don't want to be under my control I'll show you what my control can be And it's emotionally abusive, it's financially abusive, it's physically abusive. I mean, it's in every aspect of it, you know. So it's just – it's unfortunate that, you know, we had been in a relationship for a very long time, but it's a grooming process, right? You know, so through this year, it's – everyone thinks domestic violence is one of those things like you just get in the car on the first date and he just punches you in your face and you're like, oh, I love you. That's not what happens. It is – it is a love that comes out of nowhere, and it's overwhelming, and it's strong, and it swoops you off your feet, but it's not swooping you off to carry you and to provide for you and love for you. It's to swoop you off your feet, to knock you on your butt, and to build you back up in the way that they want you to be built, to literally worship the ground that they work on. Well, um, yeah,
0: I, I, and I think how incredibly strong and and. Bold, you are, um, and the fact that you're speaking up is amazing. Um, I'm curious, and I know that's something that we talked about. Is you know you you came here from Illinois to Indiana to Indianapolis. What do you hope to sh- to to gain with sharing your story with others, and and why Indianapolis?
2: Well, Indiana is literally our bordering state, right? It's it's only a three hour drive from here, and I came here specifically when I reached out to you. I was looking at the Baker One project, you know, Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department and a coalition of, you know, domestic violence victims in this area had kind of created a different way to look at domestic violence. And with my domestic task force that we're trying to introduce into Illinois, I felt that there would be a lot of correlation between the two to figure out how a neighboring sister state was handling domestic violence and really the epidemic that they're dealing with within their state. That is not a quarantine case that we're also dealing with it within our states and literally nationwide. And really, honestly, if you think about it throughout the world, you know, so to come to Illinois or to come to Indiana, when you go back and forth between the two, we're always bridging that gap between, you know, people come from Indiana to Illinois and Illinois to Indiana. So creating this communication between the two states that literally border each other all the way down, I think is important in realizing that, you know, there are efforts to, to be made just even hours away that are trying to help protect women. And those same pro- the same problems that we're facing within Illinois is happening just right next door. And We need to make sure that we're opening that communication that when people move from state to state, even opening this national registry, being able to find these violent offenders and be able to look them up so then that way they can't create this new cycle in another area and have another victim that they've now abused.
0: And and I know that you're going to be connected with Indiana Domestic Violence Coalition and also Domestic Violence Network. Yes. And um, if we can be a resource to any other organizations, you know, you can call us and count on us for sure, too. But I hope there's some good conversations um, with them as well, too. Um, I know Stevie was. Yeah,
1: Cassandra. Thankfully, and frankly, miraculously, you and your daughter survived this tragedy. How's she doing?
2: You know what? She's doing actually pretty good. She just made honor roll at school. Um, She does a creative art therapy, which for her is a very way for her to kind of outlet through art. She loves drawing. She's very creative, always has been. Um, So I thought that was a way for her to open communications within, you know, her therapist and her. But to see that she's not sitting in a chair being spotlighted, like, well, Because I think a lot of people think counseling, even at it, is that you go there because something's wrong with you. But that's not the case. Most cases, we go there because something happened to us. And it's trauma most of the time, you know. And so I want her to be able to know that this is just another tool in her toolbox to be able to open lines up, to realize that what happened to her that day should never have happened to her. It should never happen to anybody. But she's got to have the right tools. But she's, you know, she's. if you just met her, you would be like, You would have no idea. She's strong. She's intuitive. She's blossoming. She's flourishing, but she's emulative of me. You know, she sees me get up every day and she sees me get dressed and get out the door and I bring her to school and I go into her school activities, even though my heart shatters when I sit there and I think of everything that Colton's missing out with us. And, you know, I see her break down when she sees another little boy interacting with a sister because I know she yearns for that. You know, her arms yearn for that. But um you know she's surviving but she's thriving she is definitely a strong interactive little girl and luckily kids kids can they don't live in what we live in we look so much to the future of what everything that we're missing out and how much has changed our life and we really reflect in the past a lot where kids are more of a present type of child you know if things are okay now and they're calm they focus a little bit more on that rather than what actually just happened to her, you know. But well, and she
1: thankfully has an incredible role model in you, I try. and your strength is incredible. And I, again, I applaud you.
0: Yeah. And but, what about you? How are you healing?
2: You know, what? I, I have my own, you know, physical aspects of this. During you know, the attack, the, the strangulation, which I always press on that, you know, it's it was strangulation that day. It was not choking. Um, I, I really focus on that when I go and I talk because we have to change that word. We like to say choking when we talk about domestic violence because it seems like a less severe word. Even as professionals, they like to say choking, but the strangulation causes a lot of internal damage. You know, the basal ganglia of my brain, everything that I suffered from not having oxygen, um, caused a lot of short term problems for me as far as my memory, being able to recall things. I, jokingly call myself dory sometimes because i'll have a communication with somebody and then a couple minutes later i know i talked to them but i don't remember the specifics about what we talked about um i suffered what they think a stroke on my right side of my temporal lobe so my left side has a little bit of communication problem um i can't write for very long anymore i'm left-handed and unfortunately to write is a very troubling task for me um to be able to hold things out for a duration period of time, my left side of my body has struggling with that, even to walk, I can't would do what they call it a, a double task where I can think about something and walk and do a behavior activity so I mean, as far as that physical aspect of it i you know I'm recovering um you know, but I never really thought about my physical aspects until all this is kind of the dust is settled um because the pain I was feeling within my heart for Cameron and for Colton, you know, ultimately as a mom, you only want your kids to grow old and way older than you are. And you want them to have kids and be able to be a grandmother and hopefully be around for great grandkids. And my heart is definitely struggling and uh, my soul is shattered. You know, like I survived that day, like walking away, but The person who resurrected from laying on that floor is an entirely different person than I was on September 21st at two o'clock when I kissed my son and I held him, you know, and that person died in that home that day. You know, I am no longer Cassandra Tanner Miller of September 21st at two o'clock. I am now Cassandra Tanner Miller, a survivor of domestic violence and tragedy after losing my son in a very, very violent way, you know, but It's therapeutic to come, to talk, to help, you know, um, to be able to open that communication with other people and to let them know that, like, you're not suffering in silence and I'm here for you. We're all family now and every woman, child, man that's suffering at the hands of abuser should know that don't suffer in silence, that there is silence hides violence, you know, and we need to open up more communication and not be so taboo and not make excuses. People have choices stop making excuses. That behavior is unacceptable and we need to step forward together, you know.
0: Well, I think the one thing you, you had said that struck me is that even though he strangled you, you didn't lose your voice as an advocate. And I think that is absolutely amazing. And as Stevie said, we applaud you. We appreciate you for sharing your story and, and for coming to Indianapolis and for joining us on this podcast today and and sharing your story. And, you know, I, um, you know, appreciate you reaching out to me that first time, and I've told several people, like, I I don't know this woman, but I will do whatever I can, and I believe that I know Stevie is the same. So, um, you know, thank you. Thank you for having the strength and the courage and power to share your story with us and others. I know you started a Facebook group called Colton's Legacy, and I would encourage people to follow you and follow your story and and uh, your motivational speaker and your changing laws and, and you're making a difference. And And we thank you very much for coming.
2: Absolutely, and thank you. And um thank you for your support. And I know you guys are in Indiana, but it's not too far. But I'm actually hosting our first official benefit, um, April twenty sixth at uh Scooters Roadhouse um and it's in Shorewood, Illinois. Um, and it originally starts out at, uh, town Harley, um, which is in Tinley Park off of LaGrange Road at nine in. It's actually going to be called Cruisin' for Colton. Um, they're going to sponsor a motorcycle ride because my son loved motorcycles, oh, loved cars. Yeah. He actually used to walk around and just go vroom, vroom, vroom. Like I can still hear it like as yesterday. Um, but check-ins at 9, kickstands up at 11, and then we go to Scooter's Roadhouse, where I'm very lucky that um, there's two bands that are very well-known um, that are the Brass Knuckle Band and the Hillbilly Rockstars actually donated their time and effort and their music and talent um, to be able to perform. And it's a family open extended event. Um from one to six at shorewood. So I, you know, I, I would definitely like, you know, to see people come out and support it. If you get a moment, if you have a motorcycle, it's a great way to open up for the season for a great cause. And, you know, so my son, when he's looking down in heaven, he sees all these beautiful people and realizes that like, we're all warriors in this. We're all here working together and following my Facebook page, the Colton's legacy, um, you know, is a a great way. I blog, I tell my story, I update on this and, Um, I think it's just a great way and I really appreciate you guys inviting me and coming here and Indianapolis seems to be a wonderful place to be and full of wonderful people. So thank you.
0: We got you. Thank you. We'll,
2: we'll follow you. We'll support you. And
0: I have no doubt that others will as well, too. So, thank you um, You know, again, thank you very much. And thank you to the badasses out there listening. Um, we appreciate you following and, and listening to this podcast. We'd love to hear what you think. Write a review or shoot us a message at badasserylife at gmail.com. And if you want more stories like this one, you can find them on my blog at badassrelife.com.
1: You can also follow us on Facebook at badassrelife and on Instagram at badassre underscore life. Until next time, keep being your badass cell.
0: And we'd like to credit our music by Kevin MacLeod. And also our badass editor, Jenny Duran. So thank you.